A really good evening to everybody, and thank you, Sam, for leading us helpfully in the first part of the service. Um, I would encourage you to have uh, Philippians chapter 3 out in front of you. We'll be looking uh, at that, and I don't know if it was mentioned or not, but we'll particularly be focusing on verse 10 and 11. My message this evening really depends upon a particular assumption that I'm making about you. That assumption is that you've made some New Year's resolutions. Okay. Uh, we'd not actually spoken, myself and Sam, before I realised tonight that Sam was actually going to make a mention of New Year's resolutions in the first part of the service. Um, but uh, I wonder if you have made any resolutions yet. Um, I know some people dismiss them out of hand. They, they consider it perhaps a, a superstitious tradition that the world follows. Uh, not for me. I don't need any of that. Thank you very much. Maybe some others in the room have already made resolutions and swiftly broken them already. Well done. Uh, three days in. That's good going. Um, but regardless of whether you've made a, a New Year's resolution or, and you're calling it a New Year's resolution, I hope you're still, as a believer, on a path of continuous self-assessment. Uh, checking how it is that your life measures up to the standards that Scripture gives us. Thinking about how you can more closely follow Christ. Uh, and as you assess yourself, making deliberate changes then to your life, your habits, the way you live, the way you speak, the way you act, in order to become more obedient to Christ, more like Him. Now whether you call those New Year's resolutions or every Saturday resolutions or whatever else you call them, I don't know. But I hope that you are making these changes to your life. I hope that you are growing, maturing in your faith. That's the assumption that my message this evening rests on, that you are actually involved in that process. Uh, with that assumption in place, then my message is going to be rather similar to what Sam pointed us to earlier. It's somewhat stolen my thunder. Thank you very much, Sam. Okay. My message is to remind you of the motives that we have in the Christian life. What is the Christian life all about? What are we trying to become? And therefore, when we set these resolutions, how should those motives shape the resolutions? I want you to have the same desire as Paul writes in verse 10, 11. I want you to go home this evening thinking, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to share the fellowship of participating in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that somehow I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. I want that to be your desire. In fact, that's Paul's desire for his readers. Throughout this section of Philippians, he is... He is um, uh, well, chapter 3, he, he's writing about how it is that he has left the excellencies of the Jewish faith, uh, all his privileges and all his traditions, uh, what it is that's caused him to leave them behind. The reason he's left those things is for the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus and wow, what a glory it was. But that glory, that, that greatness is not just a thing in the past, it's a thing that drives him onwards. And so he says, the reason I keep following Christ is because I want to know him more. I want more of his power. I want to live with him closer each day, sharing fellowship with him. And then he writes to the people, verse 17, uh, join with others in following my example. Won't your desire be the same as mine? Won't you seek to know Christ in your life? So that's my rather grand aim this evening. 
to try and fix that fault in your minds. And if I achieve that, then I hope what that will do is um, not only to encourage you to take the same attitude as Paul, but I hope it will free you from some of the traps of self-righteousness that we so often so easily fall into when we set resolutions and and as we try and grow as Christians. I hope it will uh, set you on a path towards joyful service with the emphasis on joy there. And I hope it will give you reason to endure through whatever difficulties 2021 has lined up for us. First then, I want to know Christ. What does Paul mean by saying, I want to know Christ? Well, here's two things that I think he doesn't mean. First, he cannot mean simply, I want to know who he is. Uh, It's easy to to make that uh, conclusion because there are a number of characters within the Bible, within the New Testament, who knew who Jesus Christ was and yet did not consider it a surpassing greatness, uh, who would not be receivers of the resurrection from the dead. Think of Judas. Think of Pontius Pilate. Think of the high priest Caiaphas who sentenced Jesus to death. They all knew who Jesus was, but they weren't knowing Jesus like Paul knows them. And you might say, well, yes, that's obvious. They were his They were his enemies. But the second thing is, I I don't think this knowledge is even uh, a friendliness towards Jesus. I don't think he's talking about uh, being fond of Jesus, being tolerant of him. Um, I think that because Paul, surely, is is the greatest promoter of Jesus Christ. He's He's the friendliest one of Jesus Christ. And yet he's saying, I want to know Christ yet more. So this knowledge of Christ must be something more than just being uh, considering Christ acceptable. Yeah, he's a nice idea. Now there might be some, perhaps here this evening, perhaps watching at home online, who treat Christ as someone acceptable. You're very friendly towards him. Uh, you're happy to have him there as part of your life. You're happy to be part of his church even. You're happy to be recognised um, with his people. But that's about as far as it goes. The sum total of Christianity in your life can be found by the fact that you turn up to church on a Sunday and you've got a few verses pinned on your wall at home. Other than that, your knowledge of Christ um, goes no further than that. If that is the extent of your knowledge of Christ, then I think you fall short of the knowledge that Paul is aiming for and the knowledge that he is urging on other believers. So what is this knowledge of Christ then that that Paul is urging us to? Well, the language of knowing Christ or or knowing is familiar language to Paul. It would have been picked up from the Old Testament where the idea of knowing God is used to distinguish between true religion and false religion. So, for example, when God redeemed Israel from Egypt, one of the reasons he was doing it was so that uh, the Israelites would know God. And as part of that knowledge of them, they will be able to go and worship him and live as his people. When Isaiah the prophet comes and preaches, he condemns the, the, the religious leaders because he's saying, look, you've got all these sacrifices, you've got all the rituals, you've got all the trappings of the traditions, and yet you do not know God. You don't really know him. And then the promise of the new covenant was that each and every one within this covenant would know God. They will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Knowing God is not just having the traditions of Christianity. It's not just following the right uh, steps in life. Knowing God is an absolute devotion to him. 
Knowing God is being committed to him in in every part and area of your life. Knowing Christ is, uh, uh, is to have your life joined to Christ, united to Christ, as Paul would describe elsewhere. And so that's why, even in the letter of Philippians, Paul can use language as strong as, for me, to live is Christ. For Paul, knowing Christ, is, it means that all of what he does is done for Christ's sake. For Paul, knowing Christ means that all of his uh, mannerisms, all of his actions, all of his priority, priorities are modelled upon Christ. Paul tries to act in the way Christ would have acted. Paul tries to speak in the way Christ would have spoken. And, and this type of knowledge is the, is the way that, that Paul can both have this knowledge and yet want more of it. Paul has something of this knowledge. He has been united to Christ in this way from the moment of his conversion. And yet he can say, I want it more. Because it's not just the knowledge as in an understanding. It's a knowledge that develops into a relationship. And he's saying, I've got this relationship, but I want it deeper. I want to know more of it. I want to be closer to him. To speak in uh, spiritual terms like this is sometimes a little bit difficult for us to to grasp. Perhaps an illustration from uh, classic literature could be a help. Uh, I'm going to read you a quote from Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. And if you've not read the the novel, uh, the outline of the story is that you've got this lady, Catherine, and she's in a love triangle. She's got, on the one hand, this chap called Heathcliff, who she's grown up with. He's a dark and uh, mysterious character, very violent, malevolent towards other people. Uh, But she loves him because she's grown up with him. She knows him very closely. Uh, On the other hand of the triangle, she's got this chap called Edgar Linton. He's a bit of a wimp, um, but he's quite rich and he's quite well respected in society and the story is about which of these two men will Catherine Linter uh, will Catherine choose to love will she choose to love Heathcliff or will she choose to love Edgar Linton and describing her love to her housemaid Nellie this is what she says and she's describing her love for Heathcliff here my great thought in living is himself if all else perished and he remained, I should still continue to be. But if all else remained and he were annihilated, the universe would turn to me to be a a mighty stranger. I should not seem to be a part of it. My love for Edgar is like the foliage in the woods. Time will change it, just like winter changes the trees. But my love for Heathcliff? It resembles the eternal rocks beneath. It is a source of very little visible delight, but it is an absolute necessity. Nelly, I am Heathcliff, she says. He's always, always in my mind, not as a pleasure any more than I'm always a pleasure to myself, but as my own being. So Nelly, do not speak of our separation again. It is impractical and it is impossible. With that illustration, do you see how this knowledge of someone can be far more than just an understanding or even a recognition? But how Catherine describes her love for Heathcliff as being a total intertwining of their lives. Now, when Catherine speaks in this way about Heathcliff, 
a man who is violent and malicious, then it's no surprise that the result of her love is destruction. But if you're going to join yourself in the same way to the one who is truth, to the one who is love, to the one who is life, the result will be joy. The result will be joy. And so it's no surprise that in Philippians, Paul is saying, is instructing the Philippian believers, actually, rejoice. Chapter 2, verse 18, you too should be glad and rejoice. Um, chapter 3, verse 1, finally, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Well, Paul, how are we supposed to do that? Follow my example. Know Christ. Join yourself to him in this way. And when you do, what you will find is a life of joy and gladness and goodness. If you allow knowing Christ in this way to be the motive in your Christian life, you will avoid some of those obvious traps uh, of self-righteousness that come with with the desire to set resolutions and, and to improve ourselves. So think for, for a moment about some typical resolutions that a Christian might make at this time of year. You might say, uh, I'm going to commit to try and listen to more Christian music uh, because it's helpful for uh, thinking about good things. Uh, you might say, I want to uh, focus on reading my Bible more frequently. Or you might say, I want to start memorising more passages of Scripture. You might say, I want to put down my smartphone or, or change the habits that I have about the way I use the internet. You might say, I want to be more regular at prayer meetings that are going on at church. Now, these are all great resolutions to have. I would urge you to consider making a resolution similar to to something like this, if you've not already. But, the temptation is for these resolutions to become the measure of our Christianity. The temptation is to measure yourself, am I being a good Christian this week? Well, Have I turned up to the prayer meeting? Am I being a good Christian this week? Well, how much Christian music have I listened to? Am I being a good Christian this week? Well, how much scripture have I read? Am I acceptable to God this week? Will my prayers be heard this week? Well, how have I used my smartphone this week? Uh, the, The temptation is for these resolutions to become the measure of our Christianity. But to do that, is to put confidence in the flesh. It's to go back to the pattern that Paul has said he's left. Paul said, when when I was in Judaism, I I had the the faultless legalism of a highest order. No one could hope to better me in what I was doing. And yet it was worthless. It was as dung. There was no point following it because the righteousness that I had ultimately was my own righteousness. Not the righteous given to me shared with Christ. If instead of those things that I listed, if if, instead of setting those things as your resolution, if instead you have, I want to know Christ as your New Year's resolution, then those actions that that we first listed as resolutions become not, uh, not the end, but they become the means. So your resolution is, I want to know Christ more deeply. How am I going to do that? Well, I might, I might change the music I listen to. Not just for the end of listening to more music, uh, listening to more Christian music. 
That's not the goal. The goal is not to be a, a, a critic of Christian music. That's not my purpose. My purpose is I want to know Christ more. And so in order to do that, what I'm going to do is think carefully about the media that I put myself under. Uh, and think carefully about the words that I allow to, to, to come into my ears. And I'm going to use Christian music to allow ideas of Christ to more regularly come into my ears and my mind and therefore my heart. But the purpose is not just for listening to more music. The purpose is for knowing Christ more deeply. Similarly, scripture reading or or memorization. If your goal is more scripture reading, you have this big long list, 365 days, four readings every day, have have I ticked them all off? How many ticks can I get on this chart? You you are bound then to this, this law that you've set up for yourself. If, on the other hand, your resolution is, I want to know Christ more, then you might choose to say, well, I'm going to seek to more regularly submit myself to God's word, to read it, to allow it to influence each and every moment of my day. But your reading then, because your aim is not just get through the list, your aim is know Christ, then each day your reading is focused on, well, where is Christ here? What am I seeing? What am I reading? What am I taking in? How am I carrying this through the day with me? How am I being influenced by what I'm reading? And so rather than it becoming demoralizing, condemning even, when you lapse in these resolutions, because that's what happens if if you set them as an end, if that's all you're doing it for, just to get through the list or or to listen to more music or, uh, or, or to spend less time on your phone or whatever else, if that's the end, if that's the goal... Then when you fail, when you lapse, what's the result other than condemnation? I failed. There was the law and I didn't meet up to it. If, though, your aim is to know Christ more deeply, then what's the result when you fail that resolution? Well, actually, nothing changes. Because you're not measured by your obedience to that law that you've set yourself. You're measured by your relationship with Christ. And you are already united with him. You already share his righteousness. And so you're not condemned for your failure. In fact, nothing changes in your standing before God. Yet that motive remains. Do you know Christ more deeply? And that spurs you on. Not not to despair, but to pick up where you left off. uh, And to seek again to know Christ more and more. Paul then goes on to give uh, two um, explanations, um, further explanations of how it is that we come to know Christ. Um, First he says, I want to know Christ, I want to know the power of his resurrection. Uh, What is this power of the resurrection? Well, well, two things I think that the power of the resurrection uh, is. First, it's to know the hope of the resurrection. In verse 10 and 11, the word resurrection comes up twice, at least in the NIV, and I expect in other translations as well. Uh, first, it relates to Jesus' resurrection, the power of his resurrection. Uh, the, the second time it comes up, it refers to our resurrection, the resurrection from the dead. Uh, and in between them both, you get these references to suffering, uh, sharing in the sufferings of Christ, becoming like Christ in his death. So you've got this, this resurrection sandwich with, with suffering in the middle. What that shows us in the, way, in the way Paul writes in that way is to show us that, look, Christ's resurrection, Christ's victory, does not mean that suffering is now totally wiped out. Suffering still follows. 
Uh, and also that our own resurrection in coming at the end is dependent upon the suffering. If you're going to share the resurrection of Christ, you also have to walk that path of suffering that Jesus himself followed. And so suffering is inevitable and it is necessary part of the Christian life. But what makes it bearable? It, it is inevitable and it is necessary, but what makes it bearable? What makes it bearable is the power of the resurrection, the promise, the certainty that we too will one day be resurrected just like Christ was. And to know the power of that resurrection is to have it fixed in your mind's eye so clearly that it shapes the way you live and the way you act. That's what's going on in chapter 3, verse 13. He says, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of this prize for which I'm running. It's there in my vision. I can see it. I'm running towards it, but I've not yet got it. And I'm striving on. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal. That idea might help to set your resolutions this year. What is it that drives those big decisions in your life? What is it that drives the, the small daily decisions? Is it this great vision that one day you will be resurrected and be with Christ in the new creation, worshipping him, knowing him, serving him, with his church? If it's not, then one of the things we can do as a resolution is to, is to find ways to, to set that as our vision, to bring it more clearly into focus so that it affects the way we live day by day. Another way that this power of the resurrection affects us is to know the power of the resurrection is to know the victory of the resurrection. Think about all those resolutions that people make. Sam said 90% of them will fail. What power do you have to achieve any of the resolutions that you might set in your Christian walk? Colossians 2, also written by Paul, is, is very helpful on this. He talks about the, the laws and the rules, the resolutions, you might say, that the false teachers have imposed upon the Colossians. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And Paul says, these things, they have a real appearance of wisdom. They look fantastic, but they lack any value. They lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Look, with these resolutions that you set, you, you might achieve a change in your habits if you solely work in your own strength. You know, unbelievers set resolutions and some people achieve them. Okay, we've heard 90% don't, but 10% do. People can change their habits. You could get rid of your internet connection and chuck away your smartphone. That would stop you spending as much time on YouTube, wouldn't it? Okay. I'm not saying you cannot change anything about your life without the Spirit's work. But even if you make those changes, will you have touched your heart? Will you have put to death any particular sin if that change has not been worked by the Spirit? The Spirit that is given to us as a result of Christ's resurrection. We, we ought not to think of sin simply as the actions that result. We were hearing this morning from Joseph. He mentioned sin is, sin is not just the things we do. Sin is rooted right down in the heart. If we're going to change, if we're going to grow as believers, 
We need not just to modify our outward actions. Paul was an expert at that. As for legalistic righteousness, he says, I was faultless. Yet elsewhere, he says, I was the chief of sinners. Sin really had me, though on the outside, I was perfect. Your resolutions, you might be able to make changes to to your outward behaviours. But unless you've got the spirit working within you, you will touch nothing of the sin that dwells in your heart. Yet, there is victory. Romans 8, Paul says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, the spirit of God, then him who, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. The spirit that raised Jesus Christ is at work in you to free your heart, to free your desires, your mind from the death of sin and to give you new life. That might help set your resolutions this year. Are you just seeking to control your outward behaviours? Or are you seeking to change your heart, what you love and your desire? And are you doing that in your own strength? Or are you doing it in the strength that the Spirit provides? Following in his steps, following his prompting and guidance. Finally, the final part of knowing Jesus Christ is to know the fellowship of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Wow, what a strange thing for Paul to say. I desire to know suffering. Sounds like what he's saying here. I want to know Christ. I want to know his sufferings. Uh, What on earth is he saying? Does he mean that suffering is somehow enjoyable? Um, Does he mean that um, he's deliberately going to seek out suffering? He's going to be a real uh, pain in the backside to as many people as as he can come across? Uh, in order that they might get annoyed with him uh, and arrest him and beat him up and, and, and cause him uh, difficulty. Uh, no, not at all. The key to understanding what Paul says comes in the very next clause. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Well, what was Christ's death like? Uh, Paul has explained in the letter of Philippians exactly what Christ's death was like. Chapter 2, verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, even unto death, even death on a cross. Christ's suffering, Christ's death, was not an act of Jesus seeking out suffering. It's not Jesus going to look for the most difficult situation he can put himself in. It's Jesus seeking to obey God. To obey God even to the, to the very extent of what God has asked him to do. And Paul says, I want to know the fellowship of walking that same path. Just as Jesus walked the path of obedience, as far as it would go, even if it led through the gates of death, I want to walk that same path. And I'm willing to walk it as far as God leads me on it. Even if it means going through those gates of death. Even if it means being killed for Christ's sake. I'm willing Because I know that I will not be walking that path alone. I'm walking the path that Jesus has walked before me. I'm walking it with him by my side. This is how we uh, fellowship with Jesus as as well in these sufferings. We're not just being awkward to people. We're not just being difficult. If people hate us, if people persecute us, 
It's not because we're difficult. It, it ought to be because we are Christians. If the world hates, hated me, it will also hate you, Jesus warned his disciples. There is no commendation for a person who suffers justly. There is no commendation for a person who, who gets what they deserve. But there is every commendation for a person who suffers unjustly, who suffers because they follow Christ and suffers because the world hates Christ. How is this going to change our devotion to Christ? How is this going to help us set our resolutions? Well, look, we we don't seek suffering, but we see here that it certainly is the norm for Christians because the norm is that our obedience takes us on a path that will inevitably lead to suffering. So what will your obedience to Christ look like in 2021? What will your generosity look like? What will your evangelism look like? What will your plans for your future look like? Are you going to is your obedience to Christ going to go on being limited? As in, I will not deal with those difficult relationships anymore. That, that, that marriage relationship that has, uh, that has broken down to the, to the point of stalemate. We can't be bothered fixing it because it's too difficult. It hurts too much. Or will your obedience to Christ say, no, I'm willing to, to, to go through that. I'm willing to suffer in my obedience to Christ. I'm willing to work it out, to make improvements in order that Christ will be honoured. What about the way you share the gospel with other people? Are we we going to go on hiding behind closed doors, or are we going to be willing to to share our faith, taking every opportunity that comes our way, not being ashamed of Jesus Christ and the name that we profess? As you plan your career, your future, Are you going to limit yourself to a certain pathway because you've already done that training or or do you open yourself to all the possibilities that God sends in your direction? I will never be a missionary, you might say, because I've already trained to be an engineer. Couldn't you be both? Couldn't you uh, use your training for, for service of God? Won't you allow your obedience to Christ to take you on this path of suffering as far as it might take you? I hope that uh, what I've done this evening is to show you the, the worth of knowing Christ and to show you how setting that, that, that as your goal, to know Christ, helps to avoid the traps of self-righteousness when it comes to making New Year's resolutions and to making a, um, a, a decision to follow Christ more closely in your day-to-day life. If it has, then I thought one helpful way that we could respond together would be to recite verse 10 and 11. If you've got Philippians chapter 3 open in front of you, uh, don't worry if you're not reading from the NIV. Uh, we're not going to be saying it very loudly anyway. We've got our masks on. Don't raise your voice too loudly. Um, that goes against the guidance and things, you know. Let's say verse 10 and 11 together. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead.